Blog Talk Radio. Pat Mullen is here. How you doing, Pat? 
Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm better. I've had a long time to try to forget about the abortion that was Damian Maya versus Colby Covington. <laughs> yeah, um, that was certainly a thing that happened. All right, before we get to that, uh, the main event from last night, Derek Brunson defeats Lyoto Machida at 2.30 of the first round via knockout. I said last week that you were going to know real quick which way this was going. And after about a minute, it became pretty apparent that uh, Machida didn't have it anymore. His straight lefts were okay, but he was forcing them more than kind of finding counters. And his defense, well, his defense has always been more movement-based than proper hand positioning. And that was a little bit out of whack. He's Between the time off and the fact that his jaw has just been cracked recently, I mean that metaphorically, not literally, uh, his time at the top just seems to be done. Um, Brunson caught him with a looping left hook, clipped him on the chin, forced it to the mat, pounded him out. Uh, Shame on the ref, very briefly. uh, This was a late stoppage. Not horribly late, but say three to four punches late. Uh, there were some awkward officiating last night. Uh, there was one guy whose name I can't remember who just did an absolutely piss-poor job on one of the prelims. Uh, but Derek Brunson, again, gets a big, gets a pretty quick win, and proceeded to call out Luke Rockhold after Daniel Cormier insisted he actually named someone when everyone else had kind of been dancing around him trying to force that issue. Um Pat, you correctly predicted this one. I'll start with you. Is there anything you saw here that went differently than you expected? No, this this pretty much went about exactly as I said it would. Um, Machida doesn't have anything anymore. You know, we heard about everybody. Oh, he says his focus is back, and his he's, he's in a much better place. This was never about his focus. This was never about his mental state. This is about Machida being past his prime and not having the reflexes that he had to – compensate against superior athletes because the tendencies he had that he was able to rely on, he can't anymore. He can't pull away with his chin up because he doesn't gauge the distance fast enough and his head movement isn't fast enough anymore. Uh, A guy like Brunson is somebody who seven years ago, Machida would have salivated over fighting because his reflexes were still there to pull off those things he liked to do. And he could lean on it and get away with it and catch him with a counter. It's not there. He doesn't have anything left, and he needs to move on. All right, Jeff, you and I, I think, both went uh, sentimentally with Machida here. Uh, What did you think about this one? Well, it wasn't just because of sentiment that I went with Machida. It's that, you know, Derek Brunson has had a habit of inconsistency in the octagon, and uh, Machida has done very well against – fighters like this in the past, not even seven years ago. Uh, because, I mean, uh, five years ago, uh, he was beating, you know, he's still knocking out the likes of Ryan Bader and even less than that, guys like uh, Mark Munoz and uh, C.B. Dalloway. So, um, look, uh, Nikita will definitely go down in, in history books as one of the greatest ever, probably one of the greatest light heavyweight fighters ever. But um, his time is over. Uh, time catches up with everyone. 
uh, it was uh, definitely sad to see him get uh, knocked out like that. But, you know, um, there are just some things that PEDs can't fix, Robert, and we all have to accept that. There's a lot of things PEDs don't do, but, you know, no one wants to hear about what they actually do. Uh, sorry, my, my issues with, like, conceptions about PED or uh, uses, it gets more and more, I get more and more aggravated with it as people's ignorance. No one here, but just, like, generally, just people talking about them, just like, uh, a minor bit of research. That's all I ask. Google. Google is your friend if you know how to use it. Uh, all right, the co-main event, ugh. Colby Covington defeats Damian Maia via unanimous decision, 29-27, 30-27, and 30-26. I'm going to try and appropriately qualify this so I don't wind up getting mad at myself. I thought this fight sucked out loud. This was an absolutely atrocious display of striking from both men. You have two legitimately world-class grapplers in different disciplines. Maya with more of the jiu-jitsu approach. Colby Covington is an extraordinarily talented folk wrestler. He deserves all the credit in the world for that. And they decided to put on the, the striking equivalent of two guys, say, three shots of tequila into the night, deciding to take umbrage with each other. This was ugly. This was sloppy. This was the antithesis of everything I enjoy about people punching each other in the face. I, 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 I almost don't have words for how bad this was. Covington's striking offense consists primarily of bending forward at the waist, ducking his head down, and I can't even call this a one-two. I have an old instructor who if they ever heard me say that what Colby Covington did was a one-two, would find me and slap me. These just awful, awful looping punches, and occasionally he decides, eh, I'll try an uppercut, that he telegraphs like, he may as well send like a smoke signal, or wield the old, uh, what is it, semaphores, like the flag communication that you use to communicate ship to ship at sea. Like, hey, here comes an uppercut. And then you have Damian Maya, who spent the first round striking and is no more accomplished striker than Covington is, and proceeded to then gas himself out doing minimal striking work because, well, his, I mean, his cardio welterweight has never been great to begin with, and he exacerbated that by competing in the discipline that he is not at all normally conditioned to go potentially 15 minutes in. Covington gassed in the second, but was able to still kind of push forward, and neither guy had defense. This was, this was just the worst. I said this to someone when somebody brought this up. I think it was Andrew, uh, Andrew Graham, said that, you know, Colby, this fight was bad because I said this fight sucked out loud because for me it did. And he posited that this was still better than Woodley versus Maya. No. Hang on. If you are of that opinion, I'm not going to yell at you. Here is my perspective. If I had the capability to form some kind of a deal with an extra planar entity whereby I spent 24 hours straight without sleep watching on a randomized loop Woodley versus Maya, Maya versus Silva, and Woodley versus Thompson, too, 
for that straight 24 hours, if I had to suffer for that 24 hours, I could be rewarded for my suffering with for the rest of my life, never having to watch, read about, listen to, or hear about Colby Covington. I would take that in a heartbeat. I, I, again, I, I absolutely hated this fight. Uh, again, I want to. I, I don't want to say that you know Colby Covington's a bad fighter because he isn't. Again, his wrestling deserves tons of credit. He has great body lock work. Uh, he excels at going from uh, rear waist locks to double legs. He has great mat returns. Uh, he does a lot of what Ben Askren does. He attacks your posts very well. And when he's not striking, he can push at very, very competitive grappling pace. He's worn down a lot of guys with it. The man has a legitimate skill set. I'm not trying to detract from that. His striking is just so bad. It's almost comical. Not I mean, almost. <laughs> for me, it's almost comical. Um, I mean, again, I want to give Covington credit for winning because he won, and he absolutely deserved to win. He's only had one loss professionally. He, his last three wins have been solid he's, uh, in terms of name value. He beat Brian Barberina, who's not an easy out. He beat Dong Yun Kim, and now he beat Damian Maya. He's deserving of a very, very uh, – I mean, you could put him into the title mix conceivably, depending the outcome of RDA versus Lawler, and a little bit based on uh, Masvidal versus Thompson. Again, those are the two fights that I think will determine his next opponent, as well as you know timing and injuries and so on and so forth. He's absolutely earned his spot, and I and I believe he absolutely deserves credit for that. So I wanted to make sure I gave I gave him his due as far as his accomplishments. I just found this particular fight to be. Uh, like I, I feel like if I drove down to the backwoods of Oak, like the back streets of Oklahoma, and found a couple of drunks in a honky tonk, I could incite them to fight each other and get a probably better display of striking than what these two gave us last night. All right, uh, Jeff, I want to start with you. I know you have a slightly different perspective than me on this one, and I. am anxious to hear it. Uh, the floor is yours for your thoughts on Covington defeating this Damian Maya. This isn't even, I mean, the five worst fights ever, this isn't even in the conversation. Uh, a, a Roger Hollis fight, um, you know, his fights in the UFC are some of the worst I've ever seen. This was not. Um, Covington, he, he broke Damian Maya. He broke his stamina, he broke his gas tank, and then he broke his face. My, he, he totally neutralized Maya's grappling game. Maya couldn't even get this strike to the ground. Covington um, was able to defend all of his uh, takedown attempts. Um, Maya was completely powerless against him, though he did get some shots in, uh, in the first round. Uh, was the striking the cleanest? But, I mean, I mean, Maya has never had quality striking. He's never been a, a, a very good quality striker. It's plagued him throughout his entire career. Um, I thought it was an overall good performance of Maya. I think you two are being very harsh. And in terms of the worst fights I've ever seen, I I mean, I've seen far worse in MMA and the UFC alone. 
right, Pat, you're, uh, I warned you about this, I think, before you saw it, because I know you're a, you know, you're a boxing purist at heart, and uh, I apologize to you in advance, I think, for making you watch this. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? This fight was embarrassing on every level. Both of these guys are trash. Neither one of them knows how to stand up and fight in the least. They should be embarrassed that they went out there and looked like this. For Damian Maya, who's been in the UFC for, you know, over a decade now, you should be embarrassed that you still don't know how to stand up and fight. You shouldn't be embarrassed that your conditioning and your stamina is that bad, especially after dropping a weight class and carrying less weight with you. For Colby Covington, you should be embarrassed that you got outstruck by Damian Maya in the first round because that means your stand-up is as bad as it gets. You were fortunate in that Damian Maya's conditioning sucks and he gassed out before you did, but you still gassed out in the second round yourself because your conditioning sucks. This was awful and atrocious on every level. Every possible level, this fight sucked. It was not entertaining in the least because this looked less technical than the bar fight that Robert described earlier. This was not a war where they were landing roundhouse punches. Each of them missed probably about 90% of the strikes they threw, and they were standing right in front of each other. This was atrocious, embarrassing. It's an indictment that these two can even get into the top 10 with a performance like that. It is shameful. And I'm going to go ahead and rip into Daniel Cormier because his cheerleading for Colby Covington was embarrassing for a professional commentator during the course of a fight. I understand that we all have fighters we'd rather see win. We all have fighters we think are are great and would like to see succeed. But when you're being paid to call the fight, your job is to be an unbiased entity telling people what's going on. And what you did was swing from Colby Covington's shorts putting over everything he did as good and great and talking about how Maya was gassed when Covington was gassed at the same time. Maya actually probably in terms of strikes to the first round and a half had outlanded Covington based on his volume in the first round. And yet you talked about how Covington hurt Maya with that shot. He hit a gassed out guy and couldn't drop him or make him move or put him down. And he didn't hurt him. Your cheerleading was horrendous. This is why people don't like you on commentary, because you do this constantly, this being just the the newest example and maybe the most felonious example based on how hard you were cheerleading for him and acting like this was some great performance. It stunk, he stunk, Maya stunk, you stunk. I want to bring that up very briefly before we move on to the next fight here. I'm normally okay with Daniel Cormier's commentary. I think he's been a valuable addition to the broadcasting team. I've Again, he's not perfect, but nobody is. I've generally enjoyed his commentary. He has a wrestling bias, but A, I think he's done a decent job of curtailing that 90% of the time, and B, it's to be understood given his background. Wrestlers do stick together, and it's annoying, but it's understandable, and the majority of the time I find him to be a very effective broadcaster. To me, his prior to last night, his biggest, his worst performance on commentary, I'll phrase it like that, came when he was put in a position he probably shouldn't have been in. 
when he was asked to call the John Jones versus Ovin St. Prue fight. And that's because, of course, he's going to cheerlead for OSP. He hates John Jones. Like, that was just a position I don't feel he should have been put in. But then there came about last night when from the second fight of the night through the main event, he was just, and again, the Covington bout being the most egregious example, he was clearly biased and in support of every American wrestler on this card. Uh Again, the, the, the first, again, the one I'm referencing, the second fight on the card was uh, a flyweight bout where Jared Brooks fought Diaves and Figueredo. Not a great fight, but uh, not the worst fight on the card either. And he was just constantly of the opinion that Jared Brooks was winning and had won every round, and one asinine judge actually agreed with him. So congratulations, Cormier, you're clucky. I suppose in this analogy, it, it, this was... And, again, normally I find him very enjoyable, very informative. I generally enjoy his commentary. Last night he was way off of his game for whatever reason. Uh, all right, next up. Uh, fight I uh, I like this fight, actually. Pedro Munoz defeated Rob Font via uh, – it was actually a one-armed guillotine choke at 4.03 of the first round. Uh, this was good. Rob Font's a very accurate uh, technical striker. Has a really crisp jab, a really solid one too. Uh, he did a pre- he did a noticeable number on Munoz's uh, nose, and I think his left eye was a little bit swollen. He was bleeding from the bridge of the nose. Uh, but Munoz made a couple of very intelligent adjustments. When he realized he was struggling to hit uh, Rob Font in the head, he started going to the body when Font was in motion, which is smart because, A, it's easier to hit, and, B, it gets them thinking about you going to the body. So when the finishing sequence occurred, Font, I think, was anticipating that the left hook that uh, Munoz landed to his chin was going to aim at his body because he threw a really wide right hook that if Munoz had aimed to the body would have probably theoretically caught Munoz really squarely in the temple or the you know, back behind the ear, that jaw area. But because it went to his head instead of his body, his counter was, it never even got close, and his arm was not in position to defend. And it needs to be mentioned about Pedro Munoz. This guy, if he gets you in that front headlock position, if you shoot ugly or sloppy or desperate, he's going to put you to sleep. He knows a number of ways to get you in a guillotine or a guillotine variant and you're going to go to sleep. Uh, He grabbed the guillotine as Font tried a desperation single. Font rolled to his back, which is the correct thing to do. Munoz adjusted nicely, kept his hips, kept mount, and then because he was able to float with his hips instead of having to post with an arm, once he got into top position, he still had the arm under the chin. He went to the one-armed guillotine, which is somewhat misnamed. You actually need that other arm posting on the mat to apply leverage. It still requires both hands. You just only have one under the chin. And forced the submission. Uh, This was a really good little fight. I like both guys. Uh, I'm really excited to see what Pedro Munoz can do as he keeps moving up in the world. I have a lot of belief in Rob Font's general ability. Uh, I like this fight a lot. 
Uh, Pat, I'll stick with you for this one. Uh, what do you think here? Again, th- this was uh, our you know, our technical battle for the evening, so I'm curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, this was uh, this was the antithesis of the trash we had to sit through that uh, preceded this bout. Uh, this was a good fight. Rob Font does very basic things very well, and that'll get you far if you rely on him. What Munoz did was react to them properly. You brought it up. When Munoz was having a hard time getting Font to the head because Font was doing a very good job controlling the distance, measuring and timing, he hit him in the body, started counteracting what he was doing. Font is not a great wrestler. And when he went in and engaged, Munoz had the presence of mind to hook that that neck before Font could adjust his positioning, held on, got the position he needed, and got the tap. We saw good striking. We saw good adjustments. We saw a good conclusive finish. This was everything the fight we just talked about wasn't. Good on both of these guys. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on uh, the young Punisher? And he's still less than 30, so young is still an appropriate tagline for his nickname. Uh, Pedro Munoz? That was an impressive uh, one-arm guillotine choke submission. I think he did kind of hold on to it uh, a little too long. I'm not sure this requires some sort of disciplinary action. I do think you need to possibly give Pedro Munoz a warning. Just keep an eye on things happening um, like that in the future. I'm not really sure this is uh, uh, a Josemar Pagliatis uh, situation. Um, I don't know, but it it didn't really sit well with me the way, you know, they kind of had to fight him off or off the there uh, at the end. Um, but fair. it was an impressive submission win. Yeah, no, that's fair. He did hold this one a little long. I don't know if the, the adrenaline was just going too much or what, but uh, he at least had the presence of mind to apologize for it afterwards. So, uh, But, yeah, it definitely bears yeah, watching. Yeah, so I don't think it was completely intentional, but I think you do kind of have to give him a warning and just keep an eye on this to make sure that doesn't become a, ha- a habit, I think. Yeah. You know, kind of yeah. like the cutting weight, like every, you know, because it is still, it's still a, it is still a fight inside a cage at the end of the day, so, you know, I can kind of understand that, and I can kind of see that, but I still want, I still think we have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. You know, if there was a theme to last night, it was just old war horses not quite being able to have it anymore, as evidenced by Leota Machida, Damian Maya, and Jim Miller. Francisco Trinaldo defeats Jim Miller via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. This pains me to say, because I have been such a fan of Jim Miller's, but I really don't think he's got it anymore. I know a significant, like the last three years or so of his career, he's been dealing with uh, recurring Lyme disease, which is a terrible thing. Uh, if you don't live in a part of the world where ticks are prevalent, you may not be familiar with the with what Lyme disease can do to you physically. I have I ha- do happen to live in a part of the world where ticks are prevalent, and I am familiar with Lyme disease. Never had it, thankfully, but. It's uh, again. It's a terrible thing to go through physically. It's an awful disease. I mean, it'll kill you if it's not diagnosed properly. And that clearly took a toll on him. You can see in some of his fights that he's just not the same. And at this point, I think it's just mileage. I mean, he's only 34, which is shocking to me that Jim Miller's only 34 years old. 
but he's, his first UFC fight was in 2008, and he has been consistently fighting in the most bloodthirsty division that they have for, again, at this point, nine, I forget exactly when he debuted in 08, but he's coming up on 10 years. And he's not a uh, preserve-his-body style of fighter. Jim Miller has been a blood and guts style of fighter from the beginning. And it earned him a lot of fans. It earned him, I mean, there was a time when he was legitimately one of the best, say, three to five lightweights in the world. Uh, but that bill always comes due, and I think it has for Miller, because Francisco Trinaldo is 39, but doesn't have nearly the same mileage on him that Miller does. And Trinaldo, I gave Miller the first, but once we got into the second, Miller started slowing down visibly. Trinaldo was just landing cleaner punches, a little more diverse, and his takedown defense was great. It's one of the highlights of his game, really. It's not easy to get Francisco Trinaldo down. I mean, Kevin Lee struggled with it. Jim Miller only had the one takedown in the first, and he was unable to do much with it. Uh, I don't think Trinaldo's ever going to mount a real like run at the title, but despite his age, he's less shopworn than Miller is, and was able to kind of prove that in this fight. Had a good, you know, it was a fun fight, but I just seriously question whether or not you know Jim Miller still really has it at the elite level. I mean, I'm sure he could still, like, beat the crap out of me, but, you know, I'm nobody. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you here. Um, what did you think about this one? This was a I, – I was decently entertained. This was a solid lightweight fight. I thought it was a solid lightweight fight, a competitive fight. I was really impressed with Trinaldo. He's a guy, I mean, really um, – I, I mean, at 39 years old, to still be as competitive – and to fight at this level uh, in, you know, one of MMA's most deadliest divisions. It's pretty impressive. And I think he had a real good showing here against, uh, you know, a tough veteran like Jim Miller. And Jim Miller may not be, you know, uh, as good as he used to be, but he is still very tough and very formidable. And I think it says, uh, t- to me, it's, it's not so much that Jim Miller has the time, but I think Trinaldo was still able to beat a very tough and competitive uh, Jim Miller. And I think Miller may no longer be one of the top lightweights in the world, but again, he's still very tough, competitive, formidable. Uh, and Trinaldo uh, looked great in this fight. So props to him. All right, Pat, your thoughts on this one? Uh, Jim Miller was always a good, not great fighter, but he's a guy who I don't know what the point of keeping him around still is. He hasn't won a fight of real significance in close to five years at this point. He's losing to everybody who's on the upswing that he faces. He's taking a lot of beatings along the way. I I just, you know, they're not hurting for bodies in that division. He doesn't really add anything at this point anymore. He's not going to beat anybody relevant. I really don't know what the point of keeping him in the UFC is anymore. I wish him well on what he does. He's provided a lot of exciting fights. But the time has come and gone for Jim Miller. And Trinaldo at 39, you know, he's a fresh 39, if there is such a thing. Uh, it was a good performance by him last night. He's coming off the fight with Kevin Lee prior to this, where, who Kevin Lee looks great up until the, he ran into Ferguson. And even then, gave a really great fight. Um, he's beaten Paul Felder 
Yeah, you know, give him give him somebody else to fight. He's he's worth watching still at this point. He's not showing signs of decline yet because of his age or anything. Put him in there with somebody else. Let's see him go again with Michael Chiesa. Yeah, um, I I'd be down for that. All right. Uh, next up, this the Let's odds on this one surprise. Uh, Miller beat uh, Yancey Medeiros, who's a good fighter. In a fight that wasn't significant. Yeah, let's let's not yeah. get into that debate. Uh, whatever. No, he's, I, had it's more... he's had significant wins in less than five years. But That's your not... opinion. I I don't see any. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, next up, uh, we have Tiago Santos defeating Jack Hermanson via TKO at a four fifty nine of the first round. I was a little surprised to see Hermanson was the betting favorite here. Um. To me, this was just an object lesson in why you don't back straight up when you're under pressure. Hermanson moves well around the cage until he is engaged. And every time Santos would engage on him, he would back up in a straight line. And, And Santos finally keyed into that and near the end of the round just blitzed and didn't stop. He landed up. Left uppercut that, as about the time Hermanson hit the fence, really clipped him on the chin, dropped him, he swarmed him, uh, he got the finish. Tiago Santos is, there's limits to his game, but he's also very good. Uh, I think it's, I mean, he was ranked number 15, I think. I mean, his only loss recently was uh, to Musasi, wasn't it? Uh, no, he, he, he got choked out. After that. Yeah, yeah he had the Spicely fight. But he's won three in a row, and I mean he's got a very good overall UFC record. Jeez, I'm actually just looking at it. Uh, you know, I, I think it's time to give him someone close to number ten-ish in the division. Um, and see what he does. I mean, again, maybe he chokes again, but uh, he's more than earned his opportunity to fight someone uh, about that level. Let's say. Uh, again, this was a solid read from Santos once he kind of got it going. Uh, Pat, I'll stick with you here. Um, what were your thoughts on this one? The, the, I mean, this is classic Hermanson where he's fine when you give him space and he doesn't have somebody in his face and he can do what he wants to do. As soon as he's challenged on that, he panics and flees in a straight line backward. Santos just happened to be a guy smart enough to figure oh, if he's going to do that, I'm just going to keep advancing forward and swinging because I'm going to hit him because he is going to run out of space. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Hermanson, for a guy who has – he has talent, but the fact that he's still doing this after X amount of fights, I don't know that he's ever going to wake up from it and make an improvement. Santos, like you said, he is what he is. He's shown us basically all his cards of what he can do at this point, and we're not expecting him to be the middleweight champion. But he's a guy who's capable of beating a good number of fighters when given the opportunity, and that's why he'll stick around uh, for a little while anyway. He's, you know, he had the back-to-back losses. He's come back strong from them, winning three fights in a row by knockout. Uh, and he was the one who nailed the, that spinning heel kick, if I'm not mistaken, on the card in Canada, right? You are not mistaken. That was a very beautiful yeah. wheel kick he landed. I think it was on uh, Jack Marshman, who was also on this card. Yeah. I mean, if he's going to produce knockouts consistently, 
and the only guys who are going to beat him are going to be those upper-tier guys, he's found a nice little niche for himself on these cards. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on uh, Tiago Santos, the sledgehammer taking out the Joker? Uh, Tiago Santos, I think, is a very underrated man. Um, it's, you know, maybe not a world beater, but I think he's definitely a guy you want to have, you know, hang around in your in your middleweight division. Um, he's performed pretty well lately, and uh, this was a, this was an impressive, another impressive one for him. Yeah, I was really surprised he was the betting underdog. Uh, I mean, that was the one that surprised me. Like, oh, you're cause I, I would have taken that relatively quickly if I were a betting man. Yeah, I agree. But Hermanson was kind of, he was also kind of off two straight knockout wins uh, as well. So that's brought that brought you know that probably helped helped him out in his favor. Yeah. And he didn't have uh, as many losses. He didn't. He also didn't have as many losses inside the UFC either. That's fair. All right, and kicking everything off, John Lineker defeated Marlon Vera via unanimous decision, 30-27 and 29-28 twice. I was a little disappointed in John Lineker in this fight. Um, maybe I wasn't giving Marlon Vera as much credit as he deserved. I'm fr- I'll freely admit that might be the case. But John Lineker really only wins if he's going forward. Fighting off the back foot is not something he's good at. And he did a lot of backing up in this fight, and I'm not sure what he was trying to accomplish. Um, I want to give Vera some pretty serious credit. He developed, uh, he used a lot of intercepting knee strikes and straight kicks to the either thigh or body, which are designed to halt the forward pressure of someone like John Lineker. You want to stop somebody exploding or just crowding your distance, stick something bony in their face elbows or knees do a really good job of that and he i say i do want to give him a lot of credit for that i was just a little bit surprised by the strategy lineker took i understand trying to be more patient i also think there's a difference in fighting patient and then there's you know doing what you're not good at and john lineker is not very good at fighting while moving backwards. You can be patient and still apply forward pressure, which he, for some reason, elected not to do. Uh, I think the time off might have gotten to him um, because he uh, suffered a broken jaw in uh, the T.J. Dillashaw fight. You want to make sure those things heal properly. Uh, He looked a little rusty, looked a little not quite like himself, but he still got a win. He still got back on the winning side of things, and... He's still still John Lineker, so he's still going to, you know, abuse people for our entertainment, and I'm happy to, you know, watch him do so. Uh, Jeff, with you, uh, again, John Lineker over Marlon Vera. Did, uh, did Fat John Lineker, as, like, everyone in my house knows him, whenever I bring him up, someone has to question, oh, wait, you mean Fat John Lineker? Uh, so what did you think about this one? It was a good performance. It was a good comeback performance for him after, you know, being uh, off for almost a year, uh, uh, I thought he looked fairly strong. I mean, it's a little bit unspectacular, um, but he's got to just—he's got to keep doing it, and he's got to stay consistent. He's got to keep making weight too. Otherwise, he's never going to be—you know—he's always going to be that guy who's kind of like on the cusp, but is never going to be seriously considered uh, as a serious title threat or contender. 
I just need to point out that we had John Lineker fighting on this event, and Charles Oliveira was in attendance. So located within the geographical region of this event were, <laughs> like, not, between them they have, I believe, nine. It's nine or ten instances of missed weight between just the nine, two of them. Nine failed instances, five for Lineker, four for Oliveira. Yeah. I mean, just, there has to be some kind of that – ha, that has to account for a staggering percentage of missed weight occurrences over the last, like, four years in the UFC. And it was located right there, and Johnny Hendricks is fighting next week, so – uh, all right, that was it for the main card. On the prelims, Vicente yeah, Luque yeah. defeated. There's there's one thing I want to point out about oh, Lineker yeah, in this fight. My apologies. Go ahead, Pat. So I, I know we were trying not to take too much time on the card, but John Lineker did one thing in this fight very, very well that people need to take note of. He was fighting a taller, rangier opponent who looked to use kicks and knees to close to keep the distance between them. When they got in tight and Vera chose to try to execute a tie clinch, Lineker defensively grabbed him by the waist, not because he wanted to take him down and could get better position. He just simply wanted to encapsulate the distance between them where knees were not an option. He was pressed in close to his chest where he wasn't going to get hit on the face with an elbow, and he could use the control of the body to back Vera up to the cage where the first thing Vera wants to do is break out of that clinch completely and separate. And that's what John did. And he usually hit him on the way out when he did it because Vera would drop his hands to combat John's waist lock. It's a really nice bit of strategy that Lineker did well that I don't see anywhere near enough guys doing when they are matched up with an opponent who's going to do that to them. That's one of those things where we could talk about Lineker is not necessarily spectacular at any one thing, but because he can do things like that and understands what they do in a fight, that's what makes a guy like him really good. I actually hadn't noticed that, so thank you for that. Uh, okay, as far, again, as far as the prelims go, uh, Vicente Luque submits Nico Price in the second round with a Darce choke. Um Solid enough stuff from Luke. Price never got out of second gear, which was odd because I had been kind of high on Price. Um, Antonio Carlos Jr. submits Jack Marshman with a rear naked choke in the first round because grappling with shoe face is just a bad idea. Uh, Jared Gordon defeats Hawkrin Diaz via unanimous decision, 29-26, 29-27, and 30-26. Um, Jared Gordon, man, he's he's not great. But you can't seem to hurt him, um, and he just won't let up. And he may not be technically proficient, but he's going to pressure you until you break, and he's going to do it with ugly stuff that's going to land every now and then because you can't allow for everything. Um, Elijah Zaleski Dos Santos defeated Max Griffin via unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-27, and 29-28. Um, nothing of real note here. Uh, Dievson Figueredo defeated Jared Brooks via split decision, uh, 27-30. So that's a 30-27 for Brooks. Uh, and 29-28 twice. I believe during my coverage I had this 29-28 for Brooks. Uh, the third round, I, I'll admit this, I was probably wrong about the third. That, 
that one could have gone to Figueredo without too without any uh, any controversy. Of course, by the same token, it could have gone to Brooks. It was just kind of a nothing round. Uh, giving uh, giving uh, excuse me Brooks the second strikes me as wrong. Uh, Figueredo kind of dictated that round. And kicking everything off, Marcelo Golm defeated Christian Colombo via rear naked choke at 2-8 of the first round. It was crappy heavyweights. It was over fast. I was happy. All right, Jeff, I'll start with you. Any burning desires from that set of prelims? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Vin- Vin- uh, Vicente's uh, Luke, uh, his submission over Nico Price. I mean, Nico Price had been... I mean, he'd been up undefeated up until that point. That was a that was an impressive win. Uh, Antonio uh, Carlos Jr. him submitting Jack Marshman, uh, good fight there. Um, that's about it for Burning Desire. All right, Pat. Anything from the the prelims you wanted to touch on? Nope. On to the good stuff. All righty. So that was Fight Night 119. Thanks to everyone who was there and followed along or read after the fact. I'm still baffled and humbled that people read my work. It's shocking to me. There's so many other places you can go, and you choose mine. So thank you for that. Next week, UFC 217. The UFC's uh, put a lot of eggs into this particular basket. There's three title fights on the main card. Um... There's Johnny Hendricks fighting. Stephen Thompson is fighting. Uh, this is the one the UFC's really hoping this event does well because they've had kind of a terrible year on pay-per-view. I believe the UFC has only had one event that's done appreciably over 500,000 buys um, because I know the uh, Cormier versus Jones, I forget what number that was, but that one did surprisingly well. But other than that, I don't think they've – again, I, I don't think anything else has broken 600,000. Um, it's been a really rough year for them in terms of pay-per-view sales. And they're hoping that the return of George St. Pierre will bring in a lot of buys. And for some reason, it doesn't seem to be generating a lot of buzz. Before we get into the card proper, I do want to talk with you guys briefly about something that's been kind of floating out there. And we'll be very brief with this. I promise to anyone who just, how dare you talk about, you know, business or promotion. You, you morons are only good for your fighting knowledge. I, I understand and I appreciate your perspective there, sir. This, apparently, uh, the UFC, because Dana White said something when George St. Pierre was talking about coming back. And it was just something Dana White said, so I don't think a lot of us gave it too much credence, but... He mentioned that he would have to reintroduce George St. Pierre to the audience. And I can't speak for you two. I can speak for myself. I thought that was asinine, straight up. Just I thought it was an excuse Dana White was spouting. Turns out not so much. There was some market research that had been done by the UFC of their current pay-per-view providers, the current uh, purchasers, rather, excuse me, the current audience for MMA, and a, apparently a lot of them did not know who George St. Pierre was. In the four years he's been gone, a lot of the people who watched when he was the man stopped watching, and a whole other group came into watching the sport. Now, this is not terribly surprising in, what, in the sense that every sport has cyclical fan bases, 
but I don't think I'd ever personally stop to consider MMA from that perspective. But there's a lot of people who became fans as, you know, Ronda Rousey was running roughshod or Conor McGregor was becoming a pop culture phenomenon that just never actually saw GSP fight. And apparently the UFC, was, you know, again, this research was not off. Like, there is an amount of re-education that had to be done because he'd been away for a four-year period during which the fan base had shifted. A lot of people fell away. A lot of people came on board, and he just kind of got lost in that transition. Um, Pat, I'll start with you on this one. Does that surprise you in the, you know, in the, that is the reality we're living in? I mean, the three of us all came along at different points, but we were all there for GSP's kind of rise and reign. Uh, you know, so your, it's just kind of your thoughts on that in general, and do you feel the UFC has done a promotionally adequate job of educating a bunch of people who never knew about him about who he is and why he was so special? Uh, it's not surprising to me. There was a point in time in 2009, 2010, where a lot of my friends who weren't even necessarily sports fans started watching the UFC product because of the play it was getting in mainstream, uh, you know, mainstream uh, coverage. And it was a lot due to names like George St. Pierre, Anderson Silva, guys who had become superstar entities in that medium. But once those guys started to fade out, a lot of people went with them because they didn't really know or care who a Johnny Hendricks was because he wasn't a superstar. GSP was. He was a star. He was a name. People wanted to see him. The same way when the WWE Attitude Era was over, a lot of people left because there was no more Steve Austin or The Rock. It's two very similar marketing strategies and fan bases in a lot of respects. Have, do I think they've done a good job re-educating people on who George St. Pierre is? No, I don't, because I haven't seen a ton of promotional material put forward to talk about this guy being the great welterweight, the arguably the fighter of the last decade, the names he's beaten, the things he accomplished. I haven't seen a whole lot of that myself. They just aired a half-an-hour program on FS1 uh, about George and his comeback, but I haven't seen a lot of play on the actual Fox network for it, which is their biggest outreach. I haven't seen them trying to push things in the vein of sports center and ESPN coverage. And generally, I think if you ask a lot of the fan base, who is George St. Pierre, what's your favorite George St. Pierre fight? They wouldn't have a good answer for you. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on this situation. Am I, am I way off base here? I mean, feel free to correct me if, uh, you know, you know things that I don't as far as this goes. I don't think uh, WME, IMG knows what they're doing. I don't think they know how to promote this sport as well as Zufa did. That's fair. All right. Um, Our main event. The out. They're not getting the word out for this pay-per-view. Uh, GSP, one of the biggest stars this sport has ever seen, one of the biggest pay-per-view draws ever. He's coming back, and uh, where's the buzz? Where's the promotion? Um, it's like the it's like the WME IMG. It's like they cleaned out the whole UFC staff, and they didn't and they didn't replace it with anyone who knows how to promote fights. Um, Dana White's there, but I mean, I don't feel he's doing what he used to to get the word out. Where I mean, just where are the billboards? 
I used to see billboards all the time for the big fights uh, back in Zufa's heyday. Um, And it's somewhat alarming. I'm not going to say the sky is falling here. And I am going to say you can do things to correct this. And maybe this fight, uh, this fight might do some good numbers. At, you know, sometimes for these fights, they wait until the last week to start building stuff up. Uh, I certainly remember things like that for um, Anderson Silva versus Chael Sonny, too. A, a large bulk of the promotion didn't really kick in until, like, the last week leading up to the fight, including some... Uh, Sports Center coverage that was happening, all you know, and I was there. I was there in Las Vegas for that fight week, uh, and I was co- and I covered that fight. So it was definitely, I mean, but there was definitely a buzz about that fight that I just haven't seen yet uh, for this card. Um, and I think deep down, uh, we all know this was not the matchup uh, today. So, and uh, George St. Pierre is partly to blame for this because this is the fight he wanted to. So. I'm sorry, George, but you just don't understand the stock market, and you don't understand how MMA is like the stock market. And uh, his thing, stock is not high. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest with everybody listening. I barely acknowledge this main event. Um, the, the following is a is a true story, mind you. When they first, I was in such a weird spot with my relationship with MMA when they were first talking about, hey, they could do GSP versus Bisping in, you know, summer of this year, which was one of the things people were talking about. I remember I looked at that and I went, if they do that, I am out. I can't take it anymore. I just, I couldn't have, and I actually, like, told Mark, like, by the way, if they do this, I'm probably done. (laughs) I, I don't know what I'll do. And like all emotional changes, you know, I was thankfully in a much better and healthier place when they actually announced it. And I mean, I like I, again, I still barely acknowledge it. I, but this was one of those things that, a slightly different time and place. Um, you might not be listening to me right now. I'll put it like that. Uh, the main event is Michael Bisbing versus George St. Pierre for the middleweight title. There are two title reigns going on right now that I am, well, let me, let me put it like this. I am moderately interested in Tyron Woodley's title reign as welterweight champion for its unintentional comedy. Like, I, I mean, this, his three title defenses, both of them, against, the two against Stephen Thompson and the one against Maya. People fondly remember the first Thompson fight because of the um, the late round heroics that happened in the fifth round. I remember the rest of that fight, and a lot of you people have some pretty serious blinders on about it. And then, of course, the second fight was, well, awful. And then the Maya versus Woodley fight was maybe the worst title fight I've ever seen, certainly the worst UFC title fight I've ever seen. And, yeah, I'll include the third Arlovsky-Sylvia fight in that discussion, happily. Um, I, I, I almost kind of want to see how bad it can get with Tyron Woodley. Like, just I, the car crash value of watching his fights uh, somewhat intrigues me. I'm a masochist that way. Then you have Michael Bisping, whose title reign is bordering on farcical at this point. 
in my opinion. Uh, let me qualify this. This is just me. I mean, he won the belt, spectacular moment, spectacular fashion, the culmination of a career defined by perseverance. This guy just doesn't quit. Uh, truly great moment, truly spectacular moment for him. And then he barely gets by Dan Henderson. And then he fights George St. Pierre. And middleweight's not in a position where these are remotely defendable moves from where I sit. But this is the place we've arrived at. And now he's fighting GSP, barring injury or some other form of catastrophe between now and 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 Saturday. Excuse me. And I don't know what to think. I mean, I have zero interest in this fight. Just straight up none. As far as how I think it'll go, I don't know. Uh, Bisbing's uh, significantly larger than GSP. But he's still Michael Bisbing. There's still all these holes in his game that he knows how to fight around a little bit. But he's still still hittable. He's still very hittable. He still pushes a great pace. He still has good takedown defense, but not great. It's, and then you, we have GSP coming back, and if GSP were in his prime, I think he would win this. He's got a more technical jab. I think Bisbing builds off of his better in terms of using it to set things up, but taking just jab for jab, GSP's is better. He's also got a real... He used to, GSP used to be able to take down the world, but knee injuries kind of screwed that up. I don't know who will win this. I quite frankly don't care. I am kind of rooting for GSP to win and then decide once again to retire just because that would be the funniest thing to me. And in circumstances like this where I have no actual investment in anything about this fight, I will mildly root for the most hilarious outcome because it amuses me. That's all I've got. Pat, I will start with you. Um, anything technical you want to break down about this? Because I, I freely admit, like, I'm giving this thing a very short shrift as far as thought I've, given, I've put into it. So uh, you know, feel free. What, what do you think about this one? Who do you think will win? How do you think it goes? Oh, one, I completely agree with the result you're hoping for. I really hope for that to happen just so I can laugh. Um, as far as the technical aspect of it, to me the big thing is this. Besides, obviously, and this is sad, Michael Bisping has been more active than somebody. Of course, that somebody's been somebody who's retired, but that's about the only person Michael Bisping has been more active than lately is somebody who hasn't been fighting. Uh, he still has been more active against guys who are still alive. I'll put it that way. Uh, the animated puppet-controlled corpse of Dan Henderson that was on a voodoo weekend at Bernie's-like appearance in the Octagon when they fought. Uh, <laughs> and, and still uh, almost beat did, him. <laughs> and still almost beat him. Uh, to me, what it comes down to is this. Michael Bisping, when he actually sits on his punches and throws them in combination, throws hard punches that can hurt you. George has not been hit in a very long time. I don't know what he's doing as far as sparring, but generally Bisping, who is not an overly big puncher at middleweight, is still a bigger puncher 
than the majority of guys George has seen in his career at this point and will hit him harder. And George is not exactly known for a predisposition to taking punches well. He's been out of the cage a long time. His best weapons have been his takedowns and his jab. I think Bisping can neutralize his jab via activity, and I don't think George has the the explosion needed to be able to catch Michael sleeping and take him down. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily a competitive fight. I think Bisping is going to win this fairly easily, but I hope it goes the other way just to screw everybody's plans. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on this one. I think you're picking – I've seen you mention you're picking Bisbing, right? I'm just – I mean, DSP has not fought in four years. Um, he's going up a higher weight class. He's apparently been trying a bomb weight and, I guess, muscle to this fight when – Maybe, you know, he wasn't like the leanest welterweight, but he was always so fast and quick as a welterweight. And I think that's something people always overlooked was just how fast and quick he was. And I'm not saying he won't be fast or quick here. It's just that not having fought in four years and going up a weight class, um, I don't know. It's just hard for me. It's hard for me to pick him in good faith. Um, but, but, as you pointed out, Robert, you know, Bisbing uh, does, does tend to make a lot of mistakes. He does tend to leave a lot of openings. And let me just... No matter what you have to say about it, Robert or Pat, I'm open to the idea of being entertained by this fight, the endurance fight, and I hope it's a good fight. Um, I guess that's, that's, you know, the glasses have both side of me, even though I, I'm not enthusiastic about the matchup or, or how it's been promoted. Uh, I at least hope for a good fight, entertaining fight in the league. I do. I hope it's good. I have to sit here and cover it. <laughs> uh, all right. Next up, our co-main event, another title fight. Oh, boy, this one. Let me explain. Gah. How do I explain this? Ah, if I seem... Let's go. It's a, it's a grudge match. You're still heartbroken that Dominic Cruz lost to Cody Garbrandt, which is a fight you scored for Dominic Cruz. There no, you no, go. yeah, again, my, my asinine scoring of, their, of that fight aside... My my reticence about this fight is less that I think it's going to be bad. I think this is going to be awesome. This is an awesome fight. Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw. You know, bantamweight, one of my brothers brought this up when I when talking loosely about, like, stuff last night. Because I, I you know, I'm the oldest of four, so I have three younger brothers who are not big MMA fans, but they've just absorbed a lot of knowledge because they – have to listen to me talk about it. And one of them brought up that, you know, bantamweight might be the perfect division in terms of what high-level MMA really looks like. You have guys who are big enough and still pack power, but they're lean enough to push a stupidly high pace. You have a great cross-section of abilities. There's a lot of smaller boxers that are at this size. There's a lot of smaller wrestlers who can't transition or don't transition for whatever reason to international competition in those 
uh, arenas or professional competition in terms of boxers. And it's just this really perfect cross-section of everything that makes MMA great. And this fight is one of those that I look at and I, I salivate over, but anytime I try to actually think about it, <laughs> I am forced to acknowledge once again the my own massive inadequacies of doing so. I... I I wish I could wax, you know, technical and philosophical even about this, but I really struggle when at to adequately explain and discuss what guys at this level do, especially when they're matched up with each other. I can talk about like why Demetrius Johnson will blow someone out of the water. I am so much less equipped to talk about Demetrius Johnson versus someone at or even really close to his level that it, it's not even funny. So for what it's worth, and feel free to take this or, you know, leave it as such. The reason I hesitate picking Cody Garbrandt here, I'm not saying I'm not, but why I hesitate is he turned in one of the most phenomenal performances I've ever seen when he beat Dominic Cruz. It was, it was amazing. It was an absolutely amazing thing to watch. There's a completely, not completely, but there's a, Less relate, less direct note that I think needs to be brought up about that. Uh, there's a question. Let me re- let me put it more this way. There's a question around not how good is he because he's excellent, but how much was he's just exceptionally well schooled to fight Dominic Cruz because he comes out of Team Alpha Male. And if there's one guy that that camp has seen enough of to find the right guy with the right game plan to beat. It would be that. Both these guys are mobile. Both of them switch stances a lot. I'm very curious to see how Cody will react to someone who will simply engage in a firefight with him. Because TJ Dillashaw is a... uh, How do I say this? I can only compare him to Dominic Cruz for the sake of this comparison. Dominic Cruz is more agile around the outside and looks for angles. And if he doesn't feel them, he tends to get out of harm's way as fast as he can, reset and find a better one. TJ is more likely to find an angle that he likes, kind of regardless of what you're doing, and then force it, which has been very successful. This is not one is better than the other. I'm, this is simply a difference in style. TJ is more likely to try and force an angle than float around and look for one. And I'm curious how Cody will react to someone forcing angles on him. I think Cody's the harder puncher by a significant margin, but TJ's a more diverse striker. TJ's much more likely to use kicks that range that change in height dip, uh, level, which is, again, not to say that Cody's not a kicker. Uh, he split open Dominic Cruz's eyebrow with a high kick. But he's more confident with his hands than he is with his feet. And I expect TJ will be the more diverse striker on the night. I don't give either of them a significant edge in wrestling. I think they will both try takedowns at times, but I, if you see either of them achieve a dominant position for anything over about 40 seconds, I will be shocked. 
Uh, they're both just scrambling. I mean, look, wrestling is not takedown. Into, wrestling is what happens before someone concedes a position. So when you see guys who will actually wrestle like both Cody and TJ will, you see something very different from, well, that's a double leg, so X has good wrestling. It's, it's a whole different discussion. I really don't know what's going to happen here. Um, these are both – the margin for error between these two is so slim. I'm leaning towards Cody. I am more than prepared to be wrong about this one. I'm not sure how – again, one of the things that TJ does well when he gets into combinations is he switches stances. He's very ambidextrous once he starts throwing. At distance, he's much better orthodox than southpaw. But once he gets into something, he moves between combinations. He changes angles very, very well. A lot of what, a lot of his success in that is kind of contingent on his opponent covering up and not trying to move or counter him. I don't think Cody's that kind of fighter. I think if TJ wants to get close and try to engage in prolonged exchanges, he's going to oblige him. And in those scenarios, Cody Garbrandt is very, very good. He's very good at punches that will land. He's good about controlling the inside distance, the inside lanes on his striking. And not getting hit in return. Yeah, that's the other thing. Both guys are elusive, but... I tend to lean towards Cody in terms of knowing, especially in pocket exchanges, how to get out safely. TJ's great at overwhelming you, uh, but I, it's been a long time since he's fought someone who he had to get into a firefight with. Um, when he fought John Lineker, he fought him at longer distance and was able to out-wrestle him, which is a supreme credit to him because John Lineker's not easy to out-wrestle. And he moved very well in that fight as well. I, I just, I'm leaning towards Cody. I am more than prepared to be wrong about this because if Cody's not diligent, he's going to get caught with a high kick when he's expecting a punch, and he could be seriously hurt by that. He's been knocked out in the past. So I anticipate a truly great fight. I cannot express how much I am looking forward to this bout. I also cannot begin to express how terrified I am of having to cover it because I can cover bad MMA all day long. I know what's going on. I know how to describe it. I can cover one-sided, high-level MMA decently well. Uh, I, I don't have the ability to just watch it the way that you would like to because I'm typing things, and, and there's stuff that goes into coverage. It's not just watching fights. But when you get two guys at the absolute highest level meeting, I can I still rewatch Cruz versus Garbrandt, and there's whole stretches of that fight where I have no earthly idea how to articulate what's going on. So I am terrified about this fight, and I am deeply excited for it. This is one of the most skillful fights the UFC can make at this point in time, and I, I genuinely can't wait for this fight. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you for this one. Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw, baby. It's been brewing. They hate each other. What do you think? Uh, I think you can't sell TJ Dillashaw short, no matter what you say. I think 
Cody Garbrandt, I think, probably is most definitely the more powerful striker between the two. I think Dillashaw is maybe a little more well-rounded with his skill set. Uh, I think we have, you know, we've seen that he can grapple, we've seen that he can wrestle. Uh, Cody Garbrandt to the Mafia. Um, I'm not sure what to expect out of this fight either. Um, and uh, how Dillashaw is going to approach this fight. I think something about Garbrandt just makes me think he's, he's a bit too emotional. Um, and I don't know if Dillashaw is going to bring that side out of him uh, in the cage, but he definitely has a temper issue. And uh, I think that can play to the advantage of TJ Dillashaw. Not that we will, but uh, I'm very much looking forward to this fight. And uh, I think it's one of the best fights on the card. I think it's the best fight on the card, personally. All right, Pat, I'm floundering here. Throw me with your technical acumen, which I will most likely pick your brain over next week as well. I love this fight. I love everything it brings to the table. I love the levels that both guys bring in terms of what they can do as fighters. I love there is a legitimate gripe and grudge here between them that's going to set them off and really motivate them. I love that it's for a belt. It doesn't even need to be for a belt to sell, but it just happens to be for the Bantamweight title. My biggest takeaways to take into this fight are, I know that everybody, when they talk about Cody Garbrandt, loves to talk about his finishing power, and rightfully so. In 11 fights, he's got nine knockouts. He may be, pound for pound, the hardest puncher in MMA right now, because that's how he ends fights. He hits people with his fists, and they fall down. He's done it to good guys, tough guys who are hard to stop. Did it to Tom, Tomas Almeida. Did it to Mitsugaki. Knocked Dominic Cruz down multiple times and really hurt him, which is something we haven't seen people do. But to me, and I'll point to the Cruz fight, the Cruz fight was far and away his most uh, high-level opponent that he had seen to this point. He not only hit Dominic frequently, which has been said for a long time to be one of the hardest things to do is hit Dominic Cruz clean consistently, which he was able to do. He also was able to avoid most of Dominic's attack himself, especially in close quarters. His defense is the most underrated part of his game. I think because TJ for a long time was fighting as a stand-up fighter who used his wrestling defensively. People have forgotten about how good his offensive wrestling was up until he fought John Lineker and he kept putting John on his back and John's a strong wrestler. This fight is going to be, where does it take place? Does it take place on the feet or does it go to the mat? If it takes place on its feet, the advantage is decidedly with Cody Garbrandt because he's already fought and beaten a guy who does everything TJ does on his feet but better in Dominic Cruz. Dominic has better movement, defense, mixes up his offense better than TJ. The one advantage I will give to TJ on the feet is that he's a harder hitter than Dominic, but I haven't seen Cody get hit with something that's troubled him. When it goes to the ground, I would say the pronounced advantage is TJ because we haven't seen anybody put Cody on the ground and really challenge him in that respect. I know he trains at a wrestling-heavy camp, which is definitely to his benefit here, but we're going to see what he can take away from those training sessions. He's in there with guys like Chad Mendez. 
He's in there with guys who can push him with his wrestling, like Uriah Faber. And these two have trained together in the past. What did they take away from those training sessions? Ultimately, it's going to come down to where does this fight take place. And for me, I see most of it taking place on the feet. And because of that, I think we're going to see Cody Garbrandt knock TJ Dillashaw out in what will be a great fight for as long as it lasts. I don't think we can undersell TJ Dillashaw's stand-up and striking abilities because when he won the Bantamweight title, he was primarily known as a wrestler and grappler. And he was fighting a guy like Hannon Morrow, who at that point was the scariest matchup in the division, no matter what anyone says. And Morrow was a, a supremely good striker and boxer. Yeah, this again, I am, I am really looking forward to this one. Um, if this were the only card on the, if this were the only fight on the card, I'd still buy this pay per view. I mean, that's, yeah, the, the boxing mode would sell me this fight. Um, uh, should be a great one, and and here's Cody the other wins, reason why you'd buy the pay per view next. That's true. I do want to say briefly, if Cody wins and he can safely make flyweight, which he's intimated that he can, I have to look in his wrestling background because if he's wrestled at 125 and he might have, he's not a big bantamweight in terms of you know where his musculature. Oh, don't don't I, don't say it. Don't say it I, because then we're going to expect it to happen. Don't say it and put the jinx on it. I just say, I'm only saying this. I do salivate at the possibility of champion versus champion, Cody Garbrandt versus Demetrius Johnson. I just, I do salivate over that. Even if he can't make 125, let them fight at 130. Yeah, I would be so down for that fight. I I can't express it. I I would favor Cody a little bit, but I would still love it. I would love every minute of it. All right, next up, our third title fight for the evening. For the strawweight belt, Joanna Janjacek fights Rose Namajunas. Uh, this is Joanna going for her sixth consecutive title defense. I believe that would tie Ronda Rousey's. Might actually break it. I'd have to double check. Um, she would tie. She has five title defenses now. So if she wins here, this would be six. This would tie Rousey. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I, I make no bones about being a fan of the violence that Johanna brings. Um, this is a very different fight for her in terms of the physicality of Rose Namajunas. I mean, Johanna's performance against Jessica Andrade was, ex- I mean, like, I don't have superlatives. It was a beautiful representation of how to fight a, a pressure fighter in terms of both movement, the choices in offense, the understanding of distance. I mean, that was a horribly one-sided fight. I don't think most people watching it at the time, myself included, realized how lopsided that was. Rose Namajunas is tall and lanky. She's got long arms and legs. Um, she's going to be one of the longest fighters Joanna's fought, probably since uh, Valerie Letourneau. Uh Rose is... It, God, how do I say this? Rose has a fighting style that makes you think she is sloppier than she is. Rose has a very solid technical base. She's more at home grappling than she is striking, which is not to say she is not a competent striker by any stretch of the imagination. 
but she excels at back taking because she has learned how to utilize how to leverage her gifts in that respect. She has a very dangerous rear naked choke, and she's got a good clinch game if she's trying to take you down from there. Uh, her best bet at winning this fight is to force Joanna into a scramble position that she's not entirely familiar with, where she can then slip to the back and and you know work from there. And again, Rose is more than capable of doing so. She's a very good fighter. I just a I can't pick against Joanna. I'm I mean I just I can't do it until I see a fight come out that I believe she could lose and while there are ways she can lose this one she is a very active striker which is something that has troubled rose in the past people who keep a high pace around her if she can't dictate the terms she can be flustered she has struggled against strikers who are more technical than she is uh see the carolina kovalkiewicz fight for evidence if you don't believe me Joanna has a very strong clinch game of her own, and she's an exceptional anti-grappler. I look forward to this fight, but I really don't see a compelling reason to pick against Joanna here. And I look—I still just look forward to Joanna moving up to flyweight and some of the clashes that await in that division. But uh, again, really looking forward to this fight, but I can't really pick against Joanna against pretty much anyone at straw weight at the moment. Uh, I think she takes this probably another decision because Rose is tough as nails. But, uh, yeah, I got Joanna here. Uh, Pat, your thoughts on this one? Uh, it's really, you know, kind of foolhardy at this point to start picking against Joanna. Um, in this matchup, the thing that I kind of always look back to is I think of Rose fighting Karolina Kovalkiewicz, and she almost won that fight but didn't. Kovalkiewicz fights a very, very similar style to Joanna, but with everything dialed down. So now she didn't get by Karolina. She lost that fight on the books, whether you scored it for her or not. It was very close. And now she's going to have to fight a much better and improved in every way version of that fighter in Joanna. I think Rose is tough. I think Rose is exciting and, and has been in a lot of great fights. Uh, it's very rare you see a bad Rose fight. But this matchup is very, very bad for her. And I will not be surprised to see Joanna stop her. Not necessarily because Rose isn't tough, but because Rose is going to bring the fight. And I don't see her stopping at any point, stopping to try to win. Um, she's going to keep coming at, at Joanna. And that tends to open you up to being finished because you're not fighting to survive and just hang on and laugh at distance. You're fighting to try and do something which is much more admirable. But ultimately, I think that gets her finished after she absorbs a lot of punishment through the first two and a half, three rounds. All right, Jeff, how do you see this one going? Uh, well, first of all, I want to preface this. When we start talking about fighters as being unbeatable and, and pretty much perfect, that's sort of when they start losing. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here, but I mean, I mean, Robert, let's, let's not forget there was a time, you know, where you 
considered um, Ronda Rousey to be in uh, in a similar light as uh, Yolanda Champion right here. That's so true. I, I don't think we – and I, I just mean to say is I think when we when we have phenoms, and I think Yolanda is definitely a phenom, we tend to latch on to those fighters – and we sort of believe in our heads that they are unbeatable and they and they're somewhat untouchable. And I think it it, it also happened with Anderson Silva, and I think it happened with Fedor. And we forget that at the end of the day, these guys are human beings. Now, I think one thing we have seen, uh, I think, from a lot of Joanna's recent performances, is that she tends to start a little slow. Um, and I think. At least in, uh, against uh, Gidelia, uh, Claudia Gadelia and Carolina Kovalkiewicz, I would say she gave up um, like a round or two. Uh, well, really one round against uh, Carolina. So I think and that could just be her feeling out the fight. And she's not afraid, you know, to give, to give up a round to her opponent. And she consistently outperforms them in the later rounds. So I think that's, that's also impressive. I mean – her cardio uh, and stamina, I think, are second to none. Also, she's very comfortable fighting at distance. She's very good at, uh, at uh, she's very good um, fighting backwards. She's very she's very good uh, staying away from damage and, and staying away from her opponent's uh, offense, while also uh, getting in uh, offense of her own. I mean, she's very. I mean. It, it it it's really frustrating how how I think Joanna routinely outperforms standing up than I think over half the male roster in the UFC. Like I I, I wish men would watch Joanna fight and maybe learn something from her fighting style and just because I think it seems like some of the things she does are just so simple yet crazy effective and yet. When I see some men fight, you know, who, who guys who are not slow, uh, guys who are not, uh, you know, carrying around too much muscle, it's like they don't know how to throw combinations. Um, they don't know how to cut off the cage. Um, things that concepts that just really sound simple when you say them, yet you never see them doing. And that's why I really like watching uh, Yoana fight. Uh, I think Rose maybe has an edge with her grappling skills, um, her MMA wrestling. But how often do we see Joanna, you know, get outworked or outgrabbed? Valerie Letourneau was able to have some success taking her down, but then the rest of her fight, you know, she, she uses that takedown defense so well. Uh, she has a very good sprawl. Um, I'm not sure you would call her a sprawl, sprawl and brawler, but it does sort of remind me that, you know, she's able to use her grappling to a level where, uh, fighters who are uh, strong grapplers aren't able to take her down. They aren't able to get her to the ground. She has amazing balance. So I think that would maybe be an area where Rose would want to take the fight. But I don't see her having an easy an easy way of uh, getting uh, getting a hold of of uh, Joanna and then taking her to the mat. I just don't see that happening. So uh, I think this will be a tough fight, but I expect Joanna to come out on top. But I also just I don't want to undersell uh, Rose uh, Nami Yunus because even though she is six and three, um, and she's had most of her fights in her career inside the octagon, 
I, I would say for the most part, considering the women she's been fighting, you know, beating – I mean, what she did against Tisha Torres, uh, a woman who had beaten her in the past, I think she's been really overperforming, all things considered. When you consider um, how long she's been fighting, um, and that when she came into the UFC, she was really only 2-1 and one in uh, professional fights, not counting her fights on the ultimate fight. So, yeah, I'm going with Joanna. All right, next up we have another really – this one's going to fly under the radar for a lot of people, but I find this to be a really interesting fight. Uh, Steven Thompson, fresh off of the worst title fight in UFC history, is fighting against Jorge Masvidal. Second worst. What do you have as worse? Out of curiosity. Woodley Maya. Woodley. Oh, Woodley Maya. My apologies. Yeah, Woodley Maya. Okay. I stand corrected. Second worst. Uh, He's fighting Jorge Masvidal, and... Again, I find this to be a really interesting fight. You have two well-rounded guys, but Masvidal gets overlooked a lot. I mean, you could easily score Masvidal's last fight when he uh, lost a split decision to Damian Maya. You could easily have scored that for Masvidal, and then he would have been fighting Tyron Woodley instead of Damian Maya, and we all would have been so much happier, Uh, which I also consider a fascinating fight. Masvidal will push the fight, he will push the action, but that does leave, that kind of plays into what Stephen Thompson does well. Uh, it remains to be seen whether or not he can still capitalize on the openings that Masvidal is going to give him, whether Masvidal will mix this fight up. I'm not sure, you know, if he'll really reliably get Thompson down, but Masvidal's a good grappler, a very good grappler. Uh, if you know, how is Thompson going to react to the intelligent pressure that Masvidal brings? Because Masvidal pressures you, but he's not reckless. Uh, there's a lot of points where these two line up that I am deeply interested in. Uh, I'm, I won't be shocked if Masvidal wins because, again, he's very good. But some of the style just makes me lean towards Thompson. I think Masvidal's penchant for pressing the action is just it plays a little bit too much into what Stephen Thompson is really good at. Um, I'm just hoping for a good fight, mostly. Uh, and, but again, I'm really looking forward to this one. There's a lot of ways these two match up that has me very interested in seeing how this goes. Uh, Jeff, I'll stick with you for this one. Scarface and Wonder Boy. Uh, how do you think this one goes? Uh, Scarface all the way. He is going to destroy Stephen Thompson. All right. Pat, what do you think Thompson, about this one? Thompson has no Jeff, killer. do you want to go ahead? Let's go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Let Jeff finish. No I apologize. Thompson has no killer instinct at all, and uh, Masvidal is going to make him pay for that. All right. Pat, your thoughts? You have in this fight a guy who likes to, and honestly loves to fight in Masvidal against a guy who is fighting because it's a good way for him to make a lot of money based off of his point fighting background. That's the difference in these guys. Jeff said Thompson lacks killer instinct. He's 100% right. Masvidal lacks no such instinct. 
where this fight takes place at long, long distance and kickboxing range, Thompson's at an advantage because he uses his feet very well offensively. When this fight gets inside of kickboxing range into boxing range, Stephen Thompson is up a creek without a paddle because he doesn't use his hands well. He doesn't put punches in combination together well. He doesn't punch very hard, and he's fighting a guy who does that very well, mixes up his punches well, hits hard, takes punches well in return. And on top of that, can control him with a collar tie and beat him up, can put him against the cage and beat him up, can put him on his back and beat him up. I don't like this fight for Thompson because he's going to be made uncomfortable from the start. He's going to take a lot of punches. This fight is probably almost going to look like how the Matt Brown fight ended for Steven Thompson. But Jorge Masvidal is a much more dangerous guy than Matt Brown was standing up. And I don't say that with disrespect to Matt Brown, but let's be real. Who do you want to see standing across from you in a fight where you're about to slug it out? Matt Brown or Masvidal? I'd rather see Matt Brown because at least I know I got a shot at beating him up for a little while before he comes and beats me up. Masvidal's not going to give you that chance. Masvidal's not going to just beat you up. He's going to beat you down. And that's what's going to happen here. All right. And kicking off the main card, Fat Johnny Hendricks. Uh, What happened to that guy? I mean, apart from USADA. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, look, I, I, I joke, but in all seriousness, I don't, now, correlation does not prove causation, mind you. But the fact that Johnny's decline coincided with the ban on intravenous rehydration and then the pairing up with USADA might be pure coincidence, but I tend to think it isn't. He's fighting Paulo Bohachinha. Um, I, you know... I can't pick Johnny Hendricks. I just can't do it. I mean, he just got knocked out by, who was it? Tim Boach. His only win. Where he missed weight. Where he missed weight, yeah. I mean, he's one and four in his last five, and and he only has one win since 2016. I mean, this is uh, this is like feeding Johnny Hendricks to a young, dangerous, talented up-and-comer that the UFC is kind of hoping can help revitalize the Brazilian market now that guys like Machida and Shogun and Anderson Silva and you know, Big Nog are either gone or on their way out the door. What? Uh, you talk about a guy who doesn't belong in the UFC anymore. It's Johnny Hendricks more than Jim Miller. At least I, you know, I generally enjoy watching Jim Miller's fight. And he's a reliable, he's a reliable fighter that doesn't make the UFC look bad and doesn't constantly come in overweight. You know, keep Jim Miller around. Scrub Johnny Hendricks. That's what I say. Scrub him very that's, that's where we can go. Look, I mean, if you, it, I have a brother who's a really good forklift driver. If the UFC wants to pay him, I'm sure he would deliver Johnny Hendricks to the door of Bellator headquarters. Because that's the only way you're moving that guy at this point. Um, yeah, I, I think Bohachina wins this fight. I don't even think this one's all that close. Um, yeah, I, I got Bohachina. I think he mauls Hendricks. 
I mean, he's a talented striker. He's a powerful striker. He's a he's a good-sized middleweight. I don't think he's over he's huge, but he's a good-sized middleweight. He's fast, he's young, he's strong, and he knows how to strike. This is a recipe for disaster for Johnny Hendricks. Crazy, uh, you know, there was a time several years ago where Hendricks basically had all those qualities. True. Great wrestling pedigree, strong as an ox, um, power when he was able to land clean. Knockout power in both hands. Uh, really solid kicking game he used to have. Um, I mean, this he used to have. He used to be very, very good. Uh, that was just you know, and that wasn't even all that long ago when you actually think about it. That was only like three years ago. Uh, it's it's crazy how you know fast things can rise and fall. Uh, all right, Jeff, uh, do you see this going any differently than I do? I mean, I I, I think. Honestly, I think it's a winnable fight for Hendricks, but I mean, Hendricks is just winnable if, if he was if he was reliable enough lately, come in shape and, and and come prepared, which he just hasn't looked at all. I mean, you know, yeah, he got that win over Hector Lombard, but it's Hector freaking Lombard, guys. Yeah, doesn't mean I anything. So yeah, I mean, you talk, you know, you know, you talk about a win not meaning anything. I, I mean, Hector Lombard in 2016 is right up there with meaning nothing. A few years ago, like Neil Magny is a guy I, I felt like Hendricks would have eaten alive. Even though he, I mean, he's not that old. He's only 34. I, I feel like he has definitely peaked for his fight career. He's, I think he's, he's already reached his athletic peak, which probably came around the time he fought George St. Pierre. Um, Look, he went he went one and four. He went one and four in five fights, and um, and he's routinely he's routinely missed weight or messed up. He's missed weight. He's let's see. He's missed weight three out of his uh, his last four fights. I mean, so it, it, it's it's a repeated problem for him, and he missed weight going up in weight. So to me, this isn't like a problem that that adding another weight class is going to fix. He definitely has a discipline problem. And, you know, maybe he just he just can't get that weight off anymore. And I, and I think if that's the case, it's not really worth um, all the trauma he's putting his body and his head through. I think it's time for the U.S. to leg up. All right. Pat, you've seen shot, a lot of shot fighters in your time. Uh, thoughts on Johnny Hendricks here? Uh, he'll lose, and I don't even know who Boracina is. I don't have to know who Boracina is. Johnny Hendricks will lose, and he should be gone at this point. All righty. Uh, seems we have a caller here before we – this timing works out because um, there's not a whole lot on the prelims worth delving into. All right. Um, I don't actually have your area code here, sir or madam, I, uh, but – you're on the air. If you've got a question or a comment that we can kind of hit on in 50 words, give or take, please feel free to share. Hey, Jen, it's Andrew Graham. How's it going? Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Thought I'd give a, uh, a quick call in and just offer a couple of thoughts for uh, for next weekend and maybe a couple of very quick ones on last night. Um, 
I haven't had a chance to listen to anything uh, from earlier in the show, so I'm not sure what points you guys have covered on the on the main event. But to me, I, I kind of spent part of the day rewatching uh, Georgia's last two fights uh, against Diaz and 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 um, Hendricks. I mean, it's kind of interesting thinking about both Bisping and George in terms of Bisping at this point is a very known quantity. Like he's, he's always progressed, but he's never explosively evolved. And certainly with the amount of shelf time he's had lately, like we've got a pretty good idea on what, what Bisping would do. And I would argue, I think not unreasonably that if you were to take George and Bisping at their both respective primes, whenever, whenever you want to put those years, I would probably put, give George the edge in that fight. That said, the real question is what kind of GSP are we going to see during this fight? I mean, he's had four years away. And I mean, that that's a double edged sword here because maybe it's given him some time to, to recover physically, mentally uh, pick up his, his reflexes a bit, you know, have that rest to try and do that. On the other hand, has, you know, has time come and continue to eat away at that as, as it would even with somebody who's a top level athlete, after four more years. So it's really going to come down to that. The other, the other X factor I see in this fight when it comes to George is looking at his career and how he evolved having four years of, of not fight camps, but just four years of training for the sake of training. Are we going to see something new from him? I mean, he's been spending a lot of time in New York from what I can tell. He's been spending a lot of time working on, more of a more of a point style fighting, so maybe we're going to see him bring more kicks in. Uh, I spent some time out, and uh, I think he spent some time with some of the guys. Continue to spend some time with the guys from Tiger Muay Thai. So it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, I'm, and I mean the other thing is that the size and height difference gives Bisping a definite advantage. I mean, even if even if George has put on 20 pounds, there's going to be a reach issue there. And I mean, the fact that Bisping does tend to be a fighter who, you know, fights punches and bunches or bun- punches and bunches. Sorry, that's something that historically George has not dealt with, especially since he's not a, a counter combination fighter. So, right now, I'm I'm probably edging slightly towards Bisping, but uh, I'm definitely cheering for George on that one. The reach issue is that GSP has the longer reach. Slightly. Really? Yeah. He's seventy-six. Huh. He's seventy-six. Bisping is seventy-five point five. Wow, Bisping has short arms. For his the friend. problem with the problem with that is it, it tends to be negated when you throw one punch at a time, and the most yeah. you'll ever see George throw is two jabs in succession and not follow it up. Whereas, again, as Andrew's pointed out, like we pointed out earlier, Michael punches in combination fairly well when he's got his feet planted. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Bisping's also prior to, to you know to use the colloquial brain farts where where he'll circle into power and things like that. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that one that one plays out. And I mean, again, also you have to question where's the where's the mental side with George? I mean, is he is he totally game for this one? Is he is he bringing back you know is he coming back for a definitive run or, or what's going on here? I will say to, to, to play devil's advocate if George wins this one, and I know, Rob, you're rooting for that one just because it would be hilarious. I don't like his chance you know me against too well. anybody else. <laughs> um, I don't like his chances against the rest of the top tier. 
I don't like him against Whitaker. I don't like him against Rockhold. I don't like him against um, Romero. I just, I'd pick him against Jacare. That's about it. No, okay. fair. <laughs> uh, no, as far as timing, we had just wrapped up talking about the main card for UFC 217. Yep. So, yeah, your timing actually worked out quite well. We were about to just go through the prelims. So, if you had anything briefly you wanted to talk about from last night's card, I'll, you know, I'm happy to give you 50 words or less. But before we get there, I just want to know, Andrew, who you got? Doesn't need to be super, but who you got? Garbrandt, Dillashaw, go. The fan. That is the million-dollar question. <laughs> I honestly, I think the only time I've seen Dill, uh, Garbrandt fight was actually against Cruz. And, um, and, you know, I'm oh, look up the Almeida Dillashaw. fight. I yeah, think you'll get a kick out of the shellacking he gave Thomas Almeida. From what I've seen of those two guys, I think that one to me kind of reads fight of the year nominee already. I think that's, that's a, I don't care who wins. I'm going to sit back and enjoy because I think that that one's going to be really interesting. Uh, I got the call for, uh, I got the call for, uh, you over, uh, Namunas at this point. No, no, no. I'm going to put you on the spot. Not a spot like your dog spot. Not a liver spot. No, not just any spot. Garbrandt Dillashaw, who you got? Uh, flip a coin if you have to. All right. You know what? I think I'm going to go... I'm leaning towards Dillashaw. I don't know why. That's but okay. We're on. We're on the record. Yep, we're and on the we, record. We've all vacillated here. We are not uh, united in our in our pick for that fight yeah. either. Like I said, this uh, is, this all right. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Last night, really quick. Um, honest to God, I hate to say this about these three guys because I think they're three of the you know the better fighters I've seen and and reliable performers and stuff like this, but. Jim Miller, Damian Maya, Lito Machida. I'm sorry, guys. I think it's time to hang it up. I, I like you guys enough. I don't want to see you collecting brain damage for no reason. I would generally agree with that as well. Uh, all right, Andrew. Thank you so much for calling in. Always happy to hear from you. All right. Thanks very much, guys. I'll probably uh, I'll call back next week to see if if GSG's got his smile back or not. <laughs> Going to the archives. Go into the archives and re-listen to that. I had so much fun doing that. I think I, I still I have that. Quite well. I was somewhat tempted to actually call in and, and say, uh, well, hello, my name is George from Montreal. <laughs> I think we still have that sound bit here somewhere. Uh, all right. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Take care. Uh, all right. As for the prelims, we have James Vick versus Joseph Duffy. This is actually a pretty solid fight. Uh, James Vick, the physical anomaly. He's what, six four? He's six three and fights at uh, lightweight. It's crazy. I actually kind of like Duffy here. Uh, Vick is hittable, and Duffy's a solid boxer. Uh, we and have he's a not heavyweight small. Belt. Duffy's almost six feet tall. Yeah, true. Duffy's not a small man. Um, Walt Harris fights Mark Godbeer at heavyweight. Uh, this was supposed to take place a couple of weeks ago, but. Uh, Walt Harris stepped up to be slaughtered honorably by Fabrizio Verdum. Uh, I'll lean Harris, but I'm rooting for Godbeer just because of his last name. Uh, we have a light heavyweight bout. This was supposed to be somewhat interesting. This was supposed to be Iwan Kutelaba versus Gadzimirad Antagulov. 
And I'm actually uh, Antigulov has interested me. Um, he's on a massive overall winning streak. He's two and zero in the UFC. Uh, that one interested me. Instead, we have Kutelaba versus promotional newcomer. I'm going to butcher this gentleman's name. I apologize in advance. Uh, Michael Oleksijuk. Oleksijuk. I know that's wrong because it's Polish, and I, I have to hear it pronounced, and then I'll know how to say it correctly. I see no reason to pick against Kutelaba here. Randy Brown fights Mickey Gall. Jeez, um, who cares? Um, I do. I will lean towards Mickey Gall, but I have no reasoning behind that. Uh, on Fight Pass, Alexei Olyanik will fight Curtis Blades. I have a soft spot for Olyanik uh, for reasons I can't quite explain, but I think he will submit Curtis Blades probably in the second. Um, Ovin St. Prue fights Corey Anderson in a battle of who's the bigger mental midget? I don't know. Like who, Who's two chokes in the worst possible moments? Because they're on fight pass. I mean, St. Prue's on a two-fight winning streak, but he had big spots and he choked in them. Uh, I will probably go with St. Prue there. Corey Anderson just... Uh, he's never quite hit that next level. And kicking everything off, Eamon, I swear it's not nepotism, Zahabi fights Ricardo Ramos. I see no reason to pick against Eamon Zahabi. As long as he's fighting guys of that level, he will probably be able to out-technique them. All right, Jeff, any burning desires from the prelims? Anything you want to touch on? Uh, I think Alexi uh, Olianek versus Curtis Blades is, you know, a great fight, but a decent fight for the heavyweight division. Olianek has looked pretty good lately. Um, Vic versus Duffy, good fight for lightweight. Um, that's about it. I'm not expecting great things out of St. Pru versus... Corey Anderson, but um, you know it's 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 definitely an understandable matchup for the division. But I think it can really suck ass. Yeah, it could. Uh, all right, Pat. Anything you want? You said you were interested in Randy Brown and Mickey Gall. I can't imagine why, but feel free to enlighten me. I love Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall is the hype killer. He uh, he has Sage Northcutt on his resume. He has CM Punk on his resume. As long as Mickey Gall keeps holding it down and keeping it real. I'm, I'm all about Mickey Gall. Uh, also, I had a chance to meet him a couple of times. He's a really nice down-to-earth guy. Uh, but even if I hadn't and found out he was a cool guy, I, I just enjoy him beating the, and derailing the hype trains behind certain guys. Uh, Randy Brown Punk isn't had, a hype train, but... Uh, he, he's not. But Punk was, and we all saw where that went. He does have fights and a winning record in the octagon. He does. Punk was a hype job, though, and I was happy he derailed that so quickly. Uh, Sage Northcutt has talent, but let's be real, he was there because he looked like an Abercrombie model, and Mickey kind of ended that really quick. <laughs> I just I just like that Mickey comes to just fight and likes to call out the pretty boys and the hype jobs and give me a crack them. Let them fight a real fighter. Uh, I got to love that attitude, and I'll support Mickey as long as he's doing that. Um, Ian Coup de la, my man. Um I'm all about Ian Coup de Laba. Uh, he, I, he's Coup de Laba with me. I'm Coup de Laba with him. Uh, I'll support him as long as I can keep saying that. Vic versus Duffy is a good fight. You've got two very long, rangy lightweights, uh, both with very good records and very good tools at their disposal. I think Vic is the harder hitter of the two, whereas I think 
Duffy tends to mix up his strikes a little bit better. I think he's more adept at using his legs. Um, Vic is a little bit better of a puncher. Duffy would definitely have the advantage in a grappling scenario if it gets there, which I could see it happening. I would not be surprised if Vic starts off well. Uh, Duffy is able to connect at a fairly regular clip after a little while, hurt him and drop him, and then get the fight to the ground and submit him from there. But anything could happen in that fight. It's a really nice fight on paper. I expect good things from it. All righty. That's UFC 217. Feel free to stop by the MMA Zone of 411 Mania next week. I will have coverage. And feel free to point out my ineptitude when it comes to Garbrandt and Dillashaw. I will probably score that fight wrong. Uh, something about Cody Garbrandt, man. Anytime he's gone, I feel, I feel like every time he's gone to a decision, I've scored it wrong. Hasn't happened often, but when it has, like I feel like something about him just I, I can't score it right. It's bothering me, but stop by, say hello. Always appreciated. Uh, all right. Jeff, were there any major news items we want to touch on? Anything that you feel should be discussed here? Uh, yeah. Uh, Dana White published a letter in the Daily Telegraph um, on the Mark Hunt situation. Um, let's see. Mark Hunt was recently removed from the UFC Fight Night card in Sydney, Australia. Uh, there was this article he that was uh, apparent. It was credited as being written by him uh, by player's voice where he talked about, you know, stuttering his words and slurring his words and not sleeping well and having a bad memory. The UFC pulled him uh, from the fight in Marcin uh, Tibera from Sydney uh, for the Sydney card as a result of that article. Uh, and then uh, Hunt threatened to the UFC so uh, White wrote this letter in response. Um, White claims that Hunt was not cleared uh, by doctors for the fight. Hunt says he was cleared by doctors and good to get to the fight. He said um, he contacted Hunt's team to ask him to visit the Lou Ruvo Brain Center uh, to get some more tests done, and Hunt and his team refused. Uh no matter what side of this issue you're on, I think there's no way you let Mark Hunt after writing uh, that op-ed piece he did. I don't care what anyone says. Take, pulling him from that fight was rough. Um, um, so, yeah, that's, how I, that's where I come on this issue. Uh, Pat, did uh, anything else you would like to add there? I, I don't have anything personally on that one. You know, my only thing with that is, you know, Mark Hunt put this interview out there saying he's suffering from these symptoms. If the UFC doesn't pull him from that fight and something is worse, or even if they not even anything worse, but if they're told and aware of these circumstances and they don't pull him from the fight, they look like they're committing a, a, a horrible act, like they don't have any concern for him. If they do pull him from the fight, they, which they have, they get backlash from him and certain people who saying, why would you pull him from the fight? There's no reason, blah, 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 blah. No matter what they did, they would have been criticized as they're being right now. But they did the only thing they could have responsibly. They pulled him from the fight when he's saying he's suffering from all these symptoms uh, conclusive with post-concussion syndrome, which we're more, we're more aware of now than ever and needs to be taken seriously. What did Mark Hunt think was going to happen? I love Mark Hunt, but... 
you're going to tell, talk about all these things, then complain about when you get pulled out of a fight. What did you expect? Well, uh, Pat, this wasn't even an interview. This is a blog that has his name on it. So even yeah, if it it's his like, personal blog. Well, he like he he's credited as having written it. So like he's saying his words were taken out of context. Does he even remember writing? It? <laughs> That's the other part Question. of it. Have you guys have you guys bought, have you guys seen the interviews that Gary Goodrich has done? Oh God. It's just, I saw one and just like couldn't, bear in mind I enjoy watching people get cut open violently, but something about listening to get poor Gary Goodrich have to talk just makes me sad. Yeah, so you're going to tell me that they shouldn't take this seriously and, uh, you know, they don't want any more Gary Goodridges on their hands. And I, and you can say, oh, it was a different era, it was bare knuckles and there was no rules. Guess what? There's still guys receiving head trauma from punches and kicks and elbows and knees. Tim Hayes, more recently. Yeah, and even freaking died. UFC, he used to fight in the UFC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, I just – and I'm not – and I'm not saying, like, you, like, look at – the UFC has never been exploited. Look at the BJ Penn situation and how <laughs> and just said uh, – I, I'm not. I'm, I'm still not okay with because I feel like they just sent BJ Penn's corpse out there to get demolished. You know, so I'm, I'm not going to like you know say the UFC is always in the right in situations. But yeah, after he public he he self publishes an article like that, you can't let that guy go out there and fight again. I'm not saying never. He, I, I'm not saying he. Hypothetically, I'm not saying he could never fight again if he has some like rigorous medicals and, and tests that even even then I'd still be a little suspicious but yeah af- after that specifically no it's not happening alrighty on that note I think we're about ready to wrap up here oh, so there, Pat... oh, here's one more, well, 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 oh, sorry go ahead hold on hold the phone Rob. there's one more thing I wanted to put out there so uh, I don't think it's quite official yet but it looks like uh, Habib Nurmagomedov is finally going to get back in the cage and fight. Um, oh, yeah, they signed him and uh, Barboza. Yeah, Barboza at yeah. UFC 19. So um, that Great was fight. Las Vegas. So, yeah, it looks like uh, it is a good fight. Um, so um, Habib just really needs a fight. He needs a win to get, to get right back in there in the title mix. So, that's, so that'll be December 30th. That's a really good fight. Uh, there's a serious question around Khabib dealing with a a fast technical striker like Nurmagomedov. Excuse me, like yeah, trouble fighting himself, uh, like Edson Barboza. And Barboza hasn't really had to fight a wear you down to your bones grappler like Khabib in a long time. Um, that's a really good fight. And hopefully right. both parties stay healthy. Yeah, and that so that one also has uh, Cruz versus Rivera, Calvillo versus Esparza, and Smolka versus uh, Nicolau. That's a really and solid I, card. Nicolau. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a solid. They'll be able to get like a, a title fight for that card. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Those, I mean, if you got those fight. fights, you may not need it. No, I yeah, mean a... I think that's the problem here. I think we I think you know. 
six, seven years ago, it'd be normal to have some big pay-per-view cards without title fights. And I'm like, I think they've gotten too far away from that. Well, to yeah. me, that's the funny thing about, about you know, Cody and, and uh, TJ is that that doesn't need a title to sell, but it has one anyway. Hooray for added bonuses. Uh, all right. Thanks for reminding me about that one, Jeff, because, yeah, that's a really good fight, and I do hope it actually comes to fruition. All right. Uh, Jeff, anything you'd like to plug before we head out? Yeah, go on to the movie zone right now. My early review of Thor Ragnarok is up. Um, it is uh, the latest uh, Marvel Studios extravaganza. Uh, do I think it's the best Thor movie to date? Yes, it's it's fun. It's not without its flaws, but I think it's it's very entertaining. It's got I think I think the best cinematic iteration we've ever seen for the Hulk, um, at least in my opinion. Uh, it's got lots of uh, obvious visual cues and influences uh, from Jack Kirby. It looks like, I mean, it, it really looks like they brought a comic book to life here. And uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. So go see it uh, when it comes out later this week. Um, I also will be doing uh 411 MMA fact of fiction this week. So be on the lookout for that in the next few days. Thank you guys. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, all right, yeah, speaking of factor fiction, just real briefly, uh, I believe Mark beat me last week, and I blame it on one thing. People's response to my reaction to the uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov question. I did not know you had all swallowed the UFC's company line so thoroughly as far as that one goes, but I accept defeat, and I will be back next time, hopefully better. Uh, Pat, what would you like to plug? Uh, well, it is the Halloween season coming up, and this past week, myself, Ronnie Adams, Mark Radulich, and Jesse Starcher recorded a special episode of the Screaming Boy podcast that you can listen to right here on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network with our live viewing of the Monster Squad. You can go ahead, the seminal 1987 classic. We celebrated its 30th anniversary with a Halloween time viewing and running live commentary of the movie. You can go ahead and listen to the show. I highly advise that you watch the movie as you listen. We actually tell you when to sync up and go if you're interested in doing such a thing. It is available right now on Hulu. So if you're one of the millions of people who has Hulu, you can go ahead and live sync up with it. If you're the only person you know without Hulu, which is like Likely, go ahead and get Hulu. It's worth it, and you can listen to the podcast and have some fun doing it. Uh, to be fair, I don't have Hulu. I don't have Hulu, so you all know someone who doesn't. I refuse to pay for something that is then going to make me watch commercials. I'm taking a moral. You can stand. pay for the upgraded version with no commercials. Uh, look, I pay for Netflix. I pay for Amazon Prime. I'm not paying for Hulu at this point. I, at this point, if there's something on Hulu that I want that's not available anywhere else. I can either wait or resort to nefarious means. <laughs> uh, all right. As for me, Mark Radlich and I reviewed... Oh, what was it? Why am I blanking so hard on this? Geostorm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you can listen to Damn You Hollywood, where Mark and I talk about Geostorm. That was, uh, that was something. This coming Tuesday, Mark and I will be reviewing Jigsaw. I finally got one over on him. 
And uh, looking at the schedule for 2018, it's not getting any better. Um, so we can talk about Mark being uncomfortable and cursing my existence. Uh, while I lament the death of a franchise that I once dearly, dearly loved. So tune in Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for that. And next Tuesday, we will be reviewing uh, Thor Ragnarok. I anticipate being the crotchety old man. So if you like me being the crotchety old man, to Mark's Shut Up and Have Fun, we you know, that show will probably be for you. Uh, next week, we will be reviewing UFC 217, so stop by for that. And let me double-check the timing. We will be previewing Fight Night 120, um, which has a couple of good fights. Uh, the main event is Dustin Poirier versus Anthony Pettis. Uh, the co-main event, if you like blood and guts, and I do, uh, Matt Brown versus Diego Sanchez. Uh, Matt Brown has announced this will be his last fight. So tune in for the final appearance of Matt Brown as he fights someone who is going to stand in front of him, and they're going to punch and elbow each other in the face, and there's going to be blood and violence and a good time had by all. Um, Andre Arlovsky is fighting, God alone knows why, and he's fighting a talented boxer with heavy hands in Junior Albini. This will end badly. Um, Rafael Asuncao is fighting Matthew Lopez. Joe Lozon and Clay Guida, God help us. Uh, oh, yeah, on the prelims, John Dodson and Marlon Marais are fighting. That's a great fight. Uh, this is, so we'll be previewing that whole card. There's a, again, there's a few good fights there, so tune in for that. Uh, I think that's everything. Again, feel free to come by Saturday for the coverage of UFC 217. Until then, for Jeff and Pat, I'm Robert. Thank you again for listening. Please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>